millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. In the center of Rouen, a large crowd gathers for a historic spectacle. Everyone is packed in tightly, with even the side streets filled with onlookers, eager to catch this moment. In the middle of it all, standing on a platform, was a woman, though she didn't look like one. She was dressed in men's clothing, her head shaven, wearing a cap with the slogan declaring her to be a heretic. Soldiers of an occupying army surrounded her, but the people of the city had no sympathy. They were with the English. They had come to see her die. Some man in a religious frock droned on and on about her sins. She'd heard it all before. She had endured nothing but humiliation and interrogation now for months. They had tried to break her, to force her to give in and play by their rules. But she had resisted, and so it had come to this. They saw her as a virus, as something to be purged to save the host. But she knew this was a lie. She knew she was about to become a holy martyr, and before long she would be greeted by St Peter at the pearly gates. Next to her, a monk murmured some scant words of comfort, but he was the only one there on her side. She looks up. All the men had stopped talking. Suddenly the soldiers behind her grab her and force her up to the scaffold, tying her to a post. All around her are piles of wood, dry, and ready to burn. With a great cheer, the crowd announced the lighting of the pyre. As the air filled with smoke, Joan shouted one final prayer, her throat catching as she tried to catch her breath. Jesus! 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 she cried, as the flames licked around her feet, and all around her, the world burned. Welcome to the other half. Episode 3.10, Joan of Arc, Out of Fear of the Fire. Last time we saw Joan of Arc achieve unbelievable successes, relieving the city of Orléans, driving the English out of the Loire Valley, and even reaching the gates of Paris. She waged a holy war against the English and their Burgundian allies, batting away any talk of moderation. She saw her prince crowned a king, 
and planned to do whatever it took to drive the English out of France. But it was not to be. Outside the town of Compiègne, she was captured by the Burgundians and led into captivity. Today, we'll discuss the trial and execution of a woman who was condemned as a heretic, apostate and idolater, but would later become a saint and a symbol of France. Now, this will be the last episode of this year, I'm afraid, and I've once again managed to leave you on a bit of a cliffhanger. Every time we get to this time of year, I try and plan it so we don't end the mini-series halfway through, and every year I seem to end up short. This will be the third of what will be a four-part series on Joan, but I'm afraid you'll have to wait four weeks until the 17th of January for the final part. Yes, I know, I'm the worst. But I hope you'll forgive your humble podcaster a little time for R&R over the Christmas break. It's been a hell of a year. At the start of it all, I thought that some small comfort of this damn virus would be that I would have more time to work on the podcast. But somehow it never worked out that way. But I am so grateful for your support and your kind wishes. This podcast is a lot of work, but it will never be a chore, and that is all because of you. Remember, you can support the show at patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. And why not give me a little early Christmas present with a review wherever you get your podcasts? They really help the show and always make me smile. Well, the good ones at any rate. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Warfare in the 15th century was both violent and polite, chaotic and rules-based. Surrendering captives could be expected to be treated fairly and with mercy, and the laws governing how they should be treated had been handed down for generations. This meant that Joan was not thrown into a jail cell with common criminals or killed on the spot when she surrendered. Instead, she was taken by the men who captured her to their leader. He was John of Luxembourg, a minor French nobleman who had fought on the English and Burgundian side all his life. Joan was taken to his castle at Beaulieu-les-Fontaines, 17 miles away from the battlefield and not far from the city of Amiens. Joan considered herself to be a soldier, a knight of France. She had been awarded that title by her king and expected to be treated as such. According to the rules of war, captured knights were held by their captors until a suitable ransom could be agreed. Now, of course, Joan and her family had no money to speak of, but surely King Charles would be happy to stump up the cash to free the maid of Orléans. She expected to be out in no time. The rules of war demanded it. Unfortunately, not everyone agreed with her. To the Anglo-Burgundians... Her knighthood was an abomination, ridiculous, but more to the point, misguided. They argued that it had been conferred on the basis that she had divine favour, but surely 
her capture proved that God wasn't on her side at all. This was quite a problematic thesis to counter. The Armagnacs needed the story that their reconquest was driven by divine will, but how could you square that with their prophet falling into enemy hands? Well, they had two possible courses of action. Jean de Gerson outlined the first. Remember, he was the academic whose checklist had demonstrated Joan to be the real deal to her supporters. He had since died, but he had foretold that if Joan's crusade were to fail, it would be due to lack of faith on the part of the king and his advisers. The second option, and it will shock you to hear that the king and his advisers favoured this one, was that the fault was not theirs, but Joan's. She had overreached, become reckless, and strayed from the path set out for her by God. This one was the argument distributed by Charles's men. In a message to his people, his chancellor wrote that Joan had become too willful, too arrogant, too unwilling to accept wise counsel. In a nutshell, she had no one to blame for her predicament but herself. He went further, actually, claiming that Charles had been contacted by another messenger from heaven, this time a shepherd boy from the Alps. He said that Charles would eventually be victorious, but it would not be because of Joan, whom God had condemned for her pride and avarice. She had followed her own path, not his, and this was why she had failed. So, if you were expecting the man who owed his crowned Joan to come to her rescue, then I'm afraid you're going to be disappointed. He washed her hands of her. Her fate was in God's hands now. God had brought Joan to him, and now it was up to the Almighty to decide upon her destiny. Which was, you know, convenient for Charles. There were some dissenting voices, mostly from the church and those Parisian theologians who had vouched for her. Finding deaf ears from the king, they wrote to the Duke of Burgundy, asking that Joan be subjected to an ecclesiastical trial in Armagnac, France, and not be sold for a ransom. But John of Luxembourg wanted his ransom money, and with Charles not being willing to pay it, there was only one bidder in the room. England. They more or less actually agreed with the theologians. Defeat on the battlefield meant that really Joan should be tried by an ecclesiastical court. Either she was a messenger from heaven, or she was a dangerous heretic. And only the church was qualified to make that judgement. But of course, the French church was split between those loyal to King Charles and those loyal to the boy King Henry VI. Joan then would be tried by an ecclesiastical court appointed by Henry's Regency Council. Once the ransom had been stumped up, of course. The two parts of Henry's realm, England and France, were kept separate, so it would need to be his French subjects who would raise the necessary funds. And it would need to be done fairly quickly. For as long as Joan was not on trial, they did not control the narrative. Already stories of her deeds had penetrated across Europe, and many people still believed in her. Once she was on trial, then they could put forward their case. And surely it wouldn't be that hard to break this young teenage woman. Now, Joan, of course, was not one to sit in her jail cell and passively await her fate. She still believed that God was with her, and so made a number of escape attempts. 
After one failed attempt, she was moved to a more secure castle and locked in a tower. But again, she wasn't going to let a small thing like gravity get in her way, and so she jumped from the window. She survived the fall, just, but didn't manage to get away. Eventually, in November 1530, some six months after her capture, Joan of Luxembourg had his money, and Joan was taken to Rouen, the capital of Normandy, as Paris was considered to be too close to the enemy. The boy King Henry and his advisers were already there, and released this statement. Quote, It is sufficiently notorious and well known how, for some time, a woman who calls herself Joan the Maid has put off the habit and dress of the female sex, which is contrary to divine law, abominable to God, condemned and prohibited by every law. She has dressed and armed herself in the habit and role of a man, has committed and carried out cruel murders, and, it is said, has led simple people to believe, through seduction and deceit, that she was sent from God, and that she had knowledge of his divine secrets, together with several other very dangerous dogmas, most prejudicial and scandalous to our holy Catholic faith. It then goes on to explain the circumstances of her capture, saying, quote, And since she has on many occasions been reputed, suspected, and charged with sedition, false dogma, and other crimes of lay's majesty towards God, it then finally moves on to say that because these crimes were crimes against God, rather than against mortals, then it was he that should sit in judgment. His representative would be Pierre Couchon, the Bishop of Beauvais the man who had handled the ransom negotiations with Burgundy. Cochon had been a Burgundian and later English partisan ever since their conflict with France had re-erupted at the beginning of the 15th century. He was on Henry's Regency Council in France, but most importantly, the town of Compiègne, where Joan had been captured, was in his diocese. Since her crimes were against God, that meant that he had jurisdiction. The statement ended by saying that if Joan were to be cleared of crimes against God, then she would be returned to the English as a prisoner of war. But no one expected it to come to that. This show trial would take place in public. The English were keen that everyone could see this mad teenager and come away with no doubt as to her guilt. As I've already said, the man presiding would be Bishop Pierre Cochon, and he would be assisted by around 50 other theologians mostly from the University of Paris. Although this trial could hardly be described as fair, the English were keen that the authority of both the court and the jurors be unimpeachable. As I said in the first episode of this mini-series, what is almost unique about this trial is that we have the minutes recorded from every session. I could go absolutely mad stir-fry-crazy quoting from this record, as it is way more evidence than a medieval historian could reasonably ever hope to have at their disposal. So, if you think I'm about to do a lot of quoting, well, I am, but just know, this is me being restrained. Now, just forget everything you know about modern criminal justice, as this trial will be run a little bit differently. For a start, this would take place under canon law, not civic law. Under this, such things as notoriety were considered admissible. Hearsay was very much admissible. The trial record itself opens with the statement, 
that it was well known that, quote, this woman, utterly disregarding what is honourable in the female sex, breaking the bounds of modesty and forgetting all feminine decency, has disgracefully put on the clothing of the male sex, a shocking and vile monstrosity. And what is more, her presumption went so far that she dared to do, say, and disseminate many things beyond and contrary to the Catholic faith and injurious to the articles of its orthodox belief. Remember that the crime for which she was being investigated was not rebellion against the crown or any action in battle in particular. It was crimes against the church, heresy and witchcraft. This also affected the punishment for those crimes. If she denied them, or admitted them and refused to repent and found guilty, then her sentence would be to burn at the stake. If she admitted the crimes and appropriately repented, then her punishment would be life imprisonment. So, for the clergy there present, at least in theory, they did not see their task as to burn the witch. Quite the opposite. To them, her heresy and witchcraft were already proven. Their role was to get Joan to admit, repent, and then throw herself on God's mercy. So everything they were about to do was for her own good. Honest. On the 21st of February, 1431... Just after dawn, Joan of Arc made her way from her cell to the chapel at Rouen Castle. Before appearing before the court, Joan had made two requests. First, that she be allowed to hear Mass, and second, that half the judges be made up from theologians of France. It will shock you to hear that both of these were denied. Bishop Cochon stated that since she was being tried as a heretic and a witch, she couldn't hear Mass, And, he reasoned, all the judges on the case were French. Just not from the Armagnac side of the line. Silence fell in the court as they took in the accused for the very first time. What did they see? Well, the woman walking towards them was as pale as a ghost after not having seen the sun for several months. Her hair was cropped short in a masculine style. She was dressed simply, again in male garb but her face was determined and steely. This was not her first rodeo. Remember that she had faced months of inquisition when she had first arrived at Charles's court, which included detailed and prolonged questioning by priests just as old and crotchety as the ones before her today. She had done battle with the sword to fight for her god and the king. Now she would do so with her words and her faith. The trial opened with some formalities, with Bishop Cachon asking Joan to, quote, answer the whole truth to the questions put to her upon these matters of faith, issuing subterfuge and shift which hinder truthful confession. He was looking for a simple yes to that, but Joan wasn't going to play along with this little charade, and so replied, quote, I don't know what you wish to examine me on. Perhaps you might ask such things that I would not tell. He asked her again, to which she replied that she would gladly answer questions related to her early life and what she had done since she arrived at Chinon, but she could not discuss her revelations from God, as those were purely a matter for her, King Charles, and their maker. The bishop was not going to allow her to make qualifications on this, 
And so they asked her again and again and again until finally she knelt before him with her hand on the Bible and swore to tell the truth on matters of faith, but that she would keep silent on her visions. And the bishop seems to have decided to leave it at that for now. Day one of the trial was mostly focused on her early life and those visions. She told them all about her family and her knowledge of the Catholic faith. She confirmed she knew the Lord's Prayer, the Creed and the Hail Mary. But again the bishop came up against Joan's stubbornness and unwillingness to play ball. When he asked her to recite the Lord's Prayer, to prove that she knew it, she said that she would willingly do so, but only to one who would hear her confession. Since he had already denied her Mass, the bishop was not going to do that, so asked her again to recite the Lord's Prayer, getting the same response. This little dance continued for a little while until, again, the bishop gave up and moved on. This took up most of the rest of the day, and so not much progress was made. Just before adjourning the trial for the day, the bishop warned Joan not to try and escape, or else she would be convicted automatically. Joan protested, saying, quote, If she escaped, none could accuse her of breaking or violating her oath, since she had given her oath to none. Then she complained that she was imprisoned with chains and bonds of iron. We told her that she had tried elsewhere and on several occasions to escape from prison, and, therefore, that she might be safely and more securely guarded, an order had been given to bind her with chains of iron. To which she replied, It is true that I wished and still wish to escape, as is lawful for any captive or prisoner. This pattern continued on day two. Joan was once again asked to take the oath to tell the whole truth, and again refused to comply, saying that she had done so the previous day, and that should be enough. So they asked her again, to which she simply replied, quote, You burden me too much. After further pressing, she responded, quote, You may well ask me such things, that to some I shall answer truthfully, and to others I shall not. If you are well informed about me, you would wish me to be out of your hands. I have done nothing except by revelation. The prosecutors seemingly had decided the best way to catch Joan out in her story was to catch her off guard. With their questions moving forwards and backwards through the chronology and never letting her get too comfortable. They covered a lot more ground now, moving from her meeting with Robert de Beaugicourt at Valcouleur to her arrival at Chinon and her military campaigns. She answered most of the questions, but occasionally would refuse to answer. The main event of the day, though, came when Joan changed her mind, forgetting her previous refusal to discuss her visions and instead described them in detail. She talked of seeing a bright light and hearing voices from angels. They told her to be a good Catholic girl, to go to Shinon, and had revealed the king to her. The main tension of the day came when Joan was asked if the voices asked her to wear men's clothes. And remember, the Bible expressly forbids this. She refused to say, saying that she would blame no one for that, and refused to make any further comment, even after close pressing. The next few trial days fell into something of a rhythm. Joan would be asked to take the oath, she would refuse, they'd fight some more until they fell upon their usual compromise. The prosecutors would move slowly through the story, recovering old ground, trying to catch her into making inconsistencies or accidental admissions of heresy. They began to delve into the real nitty-gritty of the angels and what she had seen. Did they have eyes? Could they see? Did the light always appear with the voice? 
To these, she offered short and straightforward answers or refused outright to talk, and was seemingly equal to every line of attack. This is remarkable for one so young and lacking in formal education. She was coming up against such learned and experienced interrogators. But recall that she had been through this before. She had experience in this game, and this time she didn't even have to be polite. She refused to fall into carefully laid traps. For instance, the prosecutors turned to the fairy tea in Dom Remy. Set the obvious, the church didn't believe in fairies, so any spirits residing in that tree could only be satanic. So when they asked her about the tree, trying to trap her into admitting to joining in village rituals around offering garlands to the fairies for good fortune, she danced around it, saying that she had heard no voice there and seen no fairies. Again and again, the questions focused on the voices and the visions she had seen. And finally, after many days of questioning, Joan slipped up. She said that the angels she had seen were St. Catherine and St. Margaret, saying, quote, Their heads were crowned in a rich and precious fashion with beautiful crowns. Now, I'm going to imagine you may not understand the gotcha nature of this. Likely, Joan didn't either. Possibly the greatest Christian theologian of the Middle Ages was St. Thomas Aquinas. And he contended that angels were beings of spirit and could therefore not take on full corporeal form. This was taken on as being sacred truth. So what Joan had seen could not have been angels. If she had seen their heads in enough detail to see their crowns, they could not have been spirits. She must have seen something else. The prosecutors seized on this and asked quick-fire questions. How did you know who they were? How did you know there were two of them? Were they the same age? Were they dressed the same? Which spoke first? But she batted those away, but then admitted to also hearing from the Archangel Michael. I'll quote directly from the trial record. Quote, Asked if she saw St. Michael and these angels corporeally and in reality, she answered, I saw them with my bodily eyes, as well as I see you. And when they left me, I wept. She likely did not know exactly what she had said that got the prosecutors so excited. Still, she had enough sense to know that this intensification of questioning wasn't exactly a good sign, and so she refused to answer any more questions that day. The next time she came before the court, they pressed her again on the angels. What language did they speak? French, she said. Aha, the prosecutor thought. St. Margaret was Scottish. Why would she speak French? Quote, Why would she speak English when she is not on the English side? Came the reply. And she refused to answer any more questions on that topic. In general, though, Joan continued to hold her own as the public interrogation portion of the trial came to a close. On the final day, the interrogator questioned her for hours and hours, once more going backward and forwards through the story, laying traps, probing details. But while Joan had had some tricky moments, she never gave up the kind of gotcha revelation that the prosecution was looking for. In all... She had faced six days of public trial over two weeks. On every day, she held her ground on her oath and seemingly never lost her cool. She was difficult and obstinate, yes, but never gave herself away in a fit of pique. It is apparent that she was a woman of singular conviction 
and purpose. She knew what she had seen and heard, and had no doubt of the righteousness of her cause, both from a position of faith and patriotism. There is, as I said, a tremendous amount of detail in the trial record, and I will link you to a public translation of it all if you're interested. But in the interest of time and your sanity, I will move on. There next followed a week as Bishop Cochon and his fellow inquisitors considered all that had been said while Joan stewed in her jail cell, always looking for an opportunity to escape, but never being able to accomplish it. She had now been incarcerated for ten months, and must have been exhausted from all that she had suffered. But if she had thought all the questioning was over, then she had a nasty surprise when, on Saturday the 10th of May, Bishop Cochon and a small group of other inquisitors came by her cell for the first of a series of private interrogations. This time, the questions were asked by a theologian called Jean de La Fontaine, and while he repeated the tactics of the public interrogators, it became clear that his primary focus was on her visions and conversations with saints. He mainly wanted to know if the saint had ever given her a physical sign, through which she could convince others, the then Dauphin Charles in particular, that she was the real deal. In the public trial, Joan had steadfastly refused to give up this piece of information, saying that this was a private matter between her, God and the king. When first asked about the gift by de la Fontaine, she replied that it was, quote, fair and honourable and most credible and good and the richest in the world, adding that it was with the king's treasure now. When pressed for more details, she said, quote, I will not tell you. No man could describe a thing so rich as this sign. But the sign you need is for God to deliver me out of your hands. The most certain sign he could show you. This was a level of detail she had never given up before. And so de la Fontaine pressed on with his questioning, asking who else had seen the sign, who exactly had given it to her, and what they had said. She replied that it had been an angel that had brought it to Charles, and that it had been it that convinced its advisers and clerics to believe in her. This was promising progress, so over the next two days they continued on the same theme, asking again in various ways and from multiple angles, until, finally, Joan cracked and told the full story for the first time, saying that she had prayed to St Catherine, who had permitted her to tell it. She said that after Easter, 1429, quote, An angel assured her king by bringing him the crown and saying that he should possess the whole and entire kingdom of France by the help of God and the labours of the said Joan. And he was to put Joan to work, that is to say, to give her men-at-arms, else he would not be soon crowned and consecrated. This crown was, quote, of pure gold, and the crown was so rich and precious that she did not know how to count or appreciate its riches, and it signified that her king would gain the kingdom of France. She said that the angel had come from on high, and that, quote, when the angel came before the king, he did the king reverence by bowing before him and pronouncing the words of the sign that Joan had said above. And with this, the angel recalled to the king the sweet patience he had shown in the many tribulations which had befallen him. And from the door, the angel stepped and walked upon the ground and moved towards her king. 
asked what space there was between the door and the place where the king then was. She answered that, as far as she knew, there was the space of a good lance length. And the said angel went out by the way he had come. She said that when the angel came, she accompanied him and went with him by the stairs to the king's chamber. And the angel went in first, and then she herself. And Joan said to the king, Sire, here is your sign. Take it. Finally, quote, asked whether it was for any merit of hers that God sent her his angel. She answered that he came for a great purpose, in the hope that the king would believe in the sign, and men would cease opposing her, and to help the good people of Orléans. And he came also for the merits of her king, and the good duke of Orléans. This was the information they had been waiting for. Real details of an angel that could walk through doors and upstairs, hold a crown, speak to onlookers, and persuade them that Joan was their saviour. They held what that meant close to their chests. So, for the next few days, they went after other topics. They had other sins for which they wanted to question Joan. For instance, has she been attempting to commit suicide when she jumped off the tower in her escape attempt? Had she deliberately sinned when wearing men's clothing, or when attacking Paris on a saint's feast day? To all these things she said no, and when pressed for why, she said that she, quote, felt assured of her salvation, and of not being damned in hell. She answered that she firmly believed what the voices told her, namely that she would be saved, as firmly as if she were already there. Asked whether after this revelation she believed that she could not commit mortal sin, she answered, I do not know, but in everything I commit myself to God. This was another win for the interrogators, as it went firmly against the church's teaching. Was she not aware that God was represented on earth by the church, by its pope, cardinals, bishops and priests? Therefore, she should submit to them. But she denied this, saying that she would only submit to the heavenly church. This all continued for a total of eight private sessions, which took place over a fortnight or so, bringing her total trial ordeal thus far to well over a month. Once again, the inquisitors took a week to collect their thoughts and the evidence, whereupon they brought up the final charges based on Joan's testimony. They weren't messing about either, reading out no fewer than 70 separate charges to the full court in Joan's presence. In the preamble, they called her, quote, a witch, enchantress, false prophet, a caller-up of evil spirits, as superstitious, implicated in and given to magical arts, thinking evil in our Catholic faith, schismatic, and in many other articles of our faith, sceptic and devious, sacrilegious, idolatrous, apostate of the faith, accursed and working evil, blasphemous towards God and his saints, scandalous, seditious, perturbing and obstructing the peace, inciting to war, cruelly thirsting for human blood, encouraging it to be shed, having utterly and shamelessly abandoned the modesty befitting her sex and indecently put on the ill-fitting dress and state of men at arms, and for that and other things abominable to God and man, contrary to laws both divine and natural, and to ecclesiastical discipline, misleading princes and people, having to the scorn of God permitted and allowed herself to be adored and venerated, giving her hands to be kissed, heretical, 
or at the very least vehemently suspected of heresy, that according to the divine and canonical sanctions, she should be punished and corrected canonically and lawfully as befitted these and all other ends. And that was just the opening, with the whole list of 70 charges taking out an absolute age to read. This clunkiness was recognised by the prosecutors, who, after a quick rethink, distilled them down to a more manageable 12. I won't read them all out to you, as they are in somewhat impenetrable medieval legalese, but broadly speaking, they focus on the topics we've already discussed at length. Her conversations with supposed angels, her wearing of men's clothes, her ability to foretell the future, and her rejection of God's earthly church. These charges were the basis of a further trial, where the evidence was considered by a panel of judges made up again of theologians, and they came to the predictable conclusion that she had not been conversing with God, as she had claimed, but instead by agents of the devil. They referred the decision to more lawyers and clerics, and they too concurred. It had taken two months of painstaking and humiliating probing and questioning, but Bishop Cochon and his English masters finally had had the trial they had wanted. However, that was not the end of it all. It was not enough for the judges to declare her guilt. They needed Joan to admit it too, repent her sins and seek forgiveness. To do that though, they would need to break her. By now, Joan was pretty beat down. Just think of the amount of sustained mental pressure she had been under, questioned in open court and in the intense, claustrophobic confines of her cell. Never seeing light, not allowed out for exercise, constantly on her guard. The wardens and inquisitors were rude and provocative as well, and gave her no rest. I'll remind you again that she was only 19 years old, with no formal education and no kind of preparation that could have steeled her for this. That she had made it this long was an incredible feat of strength and fortitude. But the cracks that had opened up during her private interrogation were deepening. Her physical health was failing, to the extent that the English were worried that she might die before she could repent or face sentence. They gave her a brief break, but after that, Cochon and his fellow clerics badgered her day after day, sometimes with concern, other times threatening her with torture if she did not comply. By now, it was April, many weeks after the sentence had been passed, but she still insisted that, quote, I am relying on our Lord. I hold to what I have already said. They also threatened her with burial outside holy ground on her death, as well as refusing her mass and confession. This continued throughout the month, and by the 2nd of May, Cachon decided to go back to public trial. In front of an assembled crowd, he declared that Joan was guilty, but if she would only repent, then her soul may yet be saved. The court examined this pale, thin, pallid young woman. Those that had been there throughout the trial would have noticed that she was far quieter, less argumentative than she had been at the start. She was beaten down, but still not broken. She held to her story, that she had been instructed by God and the heavenly church to do what she had done. And since that was the case, she did not need to seek forgiveness from his earthly representatives. In the final exchange, when asked if she truly understood that by rejecting the church, 
they would have no option than to abandon her to her fate. She finally regained some of her old mojo. Quote, You will not do what you are saying against me without evil seizing upon you, body and soul. Thus ended this public hearing, and Joan wouldn't see her inquisitors for another week, at which point they made the same threats in private, including that of torture. She responded, quote, If you were to have me torn limb from limb, and my soul separated from my body, I still won't tell you any more. And if I did tell you anything else about this, afterwards I would always say that you had made me say it by force. But while Joan was still outwardly obstinate, she must have been inside confused and hurt. Why had God not saved her from this torment? Why had he abandoned her to this fate? She had been so confident of deliverance, but it seemed likely that no help was coming. There were many more private sessions that followed the same pattern and received the same responses. And so, on the 24th of May, Kishon decided that it was finally time to pass sentence. Joan was taken from the castle, where she had been imprisoned all year, to the Abbey of Saint-Ouen. As she was led into the church, she would have seen the scaffold that had been erected in the square outside, the wood being piled, ready for burning. Once again, she was asked to repent. And now, finally, knowing exactly what befall her should she continue on this path, she relented. As her sentence was read out, she blurted that she wished to obey the church and that she would repent. That since they told her that her visions were not from God, then they must not have been so. The court erupted in uproar as the bishops and theologians caught their breath. No one was expecting this. The people in the audience were furious. They were baying for the fire. They wanted the sinner to burn. But for the inquisitors and judges, this was exactly what they wanted. They had found victory handed to them on the plate, just moments away from defeat. Quickly, what is known as articles of abjuration were drawn up. Basically, a confession, where she confessed her sins, renounced her crimes, and asked for forgiveness. It read, quote, I, Joan, called the maid a miserable sinner, after I recognised the snare of error in which I was held, and now that I have, by God's grace, returned to our mother holy church, in order that it might be apparent that not failingly, but with good heart and will, I have returned to her. I do confess that I have grievously sinned in falsely pretending that I have had revelations from God and his angels, St. Catherine and St. Margaret, etc., and all my words and deeds which are contrary to the church, I do revoke. And I desire to live in unity with the church, never more departing therefrom. Once this was all done, her sentence was read out. Due to her full abjuration, she would be sentenced to life imprisonment, during which she would contemplate and weep for her sins. She even agreed to wear female clothes, and was sent back to Rouen Castle for the first day of the rest of her incarcerated life. Bishop Cachon stayed on for a few more days to tie up some loose ends. But only three days later, he was called back to the castle. There he found Joan once more in male clothes, and clearly in some distress. 
She told them that she had been visited once more by St. Catherine and St. Margaret, and that they had told her that she had damned her eternal soul to hell to save her mortal life. She withdrew her abjuration, saying that she said it all out of fear of the fire. Following day, Cochon and some inquisitors returned and asked her if she still felt the same way, and she said yes. They would give her one final chance. The next day, while in the square the scaffold was re-erected and the crowd gathered, he asked her if she still contended that her visions were true. Joan's defiance was almost gone, her spirit broken, her voice quiet, but she held to her story. Her visions, she said, were from God. She had been visited by angels. She committed no crimes against the Lord. Whether they had deceived her or not was in God's hands, and she placed herself at his judgment. And this finally sealed her fate. She was finally able to hear Mass and give confession, and then was led from her cell through the crowded streets to the scaffold, where she was burned at the stake as a witch and a heretic. And that, the English hoped, would be that. The defeats and bad publicity caused by this strange girl would be cleansed by a heavenly fire. But, of course, it wasn't. Their names would all be forgotten, while Jones has lived on through the centuries. And next time, we will look at how and why this happened. I hope that you all have a very happy Christmas, if you celebrate such a thing. Stay safe, and I'll be back in the new year. I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.